This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Colin Firth received an Oscar nomination yesterday for his starring role in the film A Single Man. It wasn't a surprise. This year he was nominated for all the top awards. Firth is perhaps best known for films like Bridget Jones' Diary, Love Actually, and Mamma Mia, and for his role as Mr. Darcy in the British TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Our film critic, David Edelstein, called his work in A Single Man the performance of the year. The movie is set in 1962 and is adapted from a novel by Christopher Isherwood, who is best known for writing the Berlin Stories, which was the basis for the musical and film Cabaret. A Single Man is the directorial debut of fashion designer Tom Ford. Firth plays George, a gay, middle-aged British man who is now a university professor in California. His longtime partner has been killed in a car crash. Unable to deal with his grief openly, George numbly moves through his life, questioning whether it's even worth living. In this flashback from early in the film, George gets the bad news. He's alone at home. His partner is away visiting family. The phone rings. Finally. You know it's been raining here all day. And I've been trapped in this house waiting for you to call. I'm sorry, I must have the wrong number. I'm calling for Mr. George Falconer. I'm sorry, I was expecting someone else. Yes, sir, you have indeed called the correct number. How may I help? Uh, this is Harold Ackerley. I'm Jim's cousin. Oh, of course. Yes, uh, good evening, Mr. Ackerley. I'm afraid I'm calling with some bad news. Oh? There has been a car accident. Accident? There's been a lot of snow here lately, and the roads have been icy. On his way into town, Jim lost control of his car. It was instantaneous, apparently. Huh. It happened late yesterday, but his parents didn't want to call you. I see. In fact, they don't know that I'm calling you now, but I thought that you should know. Thank you. I know this must be quite a shock. It was for all of us. Yes, indeed. Libya service? The day after tomorrow. Well, I suppose I should uh, get off the phone and book a plane flight. The service is just for family. The family, of course. Well, thank you for calling. Uh, Mr. Ackley. Yes? May I ask what happened to the dogs? Dogs? Uh, there was a dog with him, but he died. Was there another one? Yes, there was a small female. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, I haven't heard anyone mention another dog. Well, thank you for calling, Mr. Ackley. Goodbye, Mr. Falcon. That's my guest, Colin Firth, in a scene from A Single Man. And Mr. Ackley, the person on the telephone, was played by John Hamm, so you might have recognized his voice. Colin Firth, welcome to Fresh Air. Let me just describe for our listeners who have not seen the movie what's going on during that phone call and after the phone call in terms of how you are reacting. 
you're in shock and you're in grief, and it's starting to register on your face. Um, as you get the news, you're breathing deeper, you, you slightly grimace, your facial muscles tighten, your eyes start to tear, but you're still holding in your emotion. And you're alone in your home. You could let loose without anybody seeing. You could really erupt. You don't. Everything is still pretty held in. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you decided to play that scene? I don't think it really came from uh, a decision. I think it was something that seemed natural because of the way it was written, because of the uh, speed with which I, I felt such news would be processed. You know, I there's nothing in the script that says um, George, you know, breaks down. What what I read was what you heard, which was, oh, Mr. Ackley, what, there, was a, there was another dog in the car. I suppose I should uh, book myself a ticket and, and it, will there be a service? He's, he's operating uh, as a man still socialized, still observing the rules of courtesy and protocol. Now, to me, looking back on it, I think there's something rather heartbreaking about that because I think he's hanging on to the world as it was a few seconds ago when everything was okay, when that's how you behaved and that's how you talked. Everything's actually falling apart completely inside. But I think if he gives in to hysterical misery, then it'll become real, and he's, he's not ready for that. So I didn't really see it as, as containment. I saw it as, as just not having got there yet. And something comes to mind here. I, to me, it echoes some of the observations that Joan Didion wrote about in the year of magical thinking you know her husband dies she records the time of his death she identifies and uh, his his body at the hospital she signs a, a form and she's ready to acknowledge the fact that she knows that he's dead she knows full well that 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 he's gone but she she's not ready to have it announced in the newspaper the next day because then somehow if everybody knows about it, it concretizes it in a way that she's not, that she's not ready for. So I, I think that um, something as monumental as, as the death of somebody very close and very loved is, isn't something that you re react to in a way that's, that's quick or, or simple. So much of your acting in A Single Man is about your face. I mean, you have dialogue in it, but there's a lot of silence in the film. There's times when people are talking to you and we're watching you react. So it's about your face and mostly about your eyes. Um, and your eyes are so interesting in this movie because they're, they ha they're so penetrating. Your eyes look like they can see through other people, but at the same time, you have this kind of shield on your own face so that people can't see through you. Um, well, I think that... A lot of what the film deals with is the body armor that George puts on. I'm sure Tom talked about this. This was something that I think was very much in our minds when we made the film. Um, he has to get through a particular day, and he has to, to put something in place, which is both a protective mask. In other words, it's something that the, uh, prevents the, the rest of the world from seeing how broken he is and how 
chaotic his his true world is. And at the same time, this has to act as a protection against the world trying to come in on him from the outside world penetrating his uh, very, very vulnerable sensibility. And I think this is where uh, he gets his need to to dress perfectly from. This is why he needs to to make sure his shoes are shined and, and that his cufflinks and his tie pin are in place and all, all of this. I think it, it, these are very much acts of desperation. These are things that his life depends on on, on this day. And I think with, if the eyes are doing anything, it's, it's, it's because um, it's, it's his day of seeing um, through that mask. Tom was there to photograph what I was doing, so it gave me a great deal of freedom, gave me a lot of freedom to be silent. As you heard in that phone call, I wouldn't have thought that that scene would work on the radio, but it's been, it was interesting to, to listen to how heavy those silences hang. And um, I think Tom has, a, has great faith in stillness and in uh, what the human face can do without a lot of histrionics and without being very, very demonstrative. And for someone who, who, whose approach to acting is, um, is, is not that demonstrative, this is a, a, a great gift. I, I felt he, he played to my strengths. Well, you know, you were talking about how that character has to dress perfectly, how that's in a way part of his body armor. Let me play you what Tom Ford had to say about dressing you for the role and how he picked the clothes. So this is Tom Ford, the fashion designer who uh, directed A Single Man. I wanted to dress Colin Firth's character in a way that would be appropriate uh, to who he was as a personality. So I thought, okay, this is a guy who is not dependent on his salary as a teacher. This is a guy who comes from a, a, a fairly wealthy background in England. He went to, uh, you know, private schools or public schools, they're called in England. And, and he's teaching at a public college because he feels this is the right thing to do. So this guy probably has his clothes made, uh, you know, when he's home in London. And he probably gets them from Savile Row, from the same tailor that his father went to. He's a professor. So what's he wearing? He's going to be wearing brown tweed. He's not going to be wearing gray. He's not going to be wearing, uh, you know, navy blue wool serge. He's a professor. So I also tried to calculate when would he have had these suits made. You know, uh, the English are quite, uh, uh, even still to this day, I think, thrifty with their clothing, uh, at least the old school English. Uh, and so I thought, okay, when did he have this suit made? I calculated he probably had it made maybe, let's say, 1957, blah, blah, blah. In fact, I even sewed a label inside Colin's suit uh, as one would get at a Savile Row tailor with his name and the date that the suit was made. And so I really gave a lot of thought to who this guy is. This is a guy who, as I said, really holds himself together by his outer appearance. Okay, so that's Tom Ford, the director of A Single Man, talking about dressing my guest, Colin Firth, for the movie. So Colin Firth, did having that fake Savile Row label sh- uh, sewed in the back of your your shirt with your name on it, and, or, or the, maybe it was the suit jacket with your name on it and the date that it was made, was that helpful to you? Yeah, yes, it was. Not, not by itself. And um, if... Uh, Tom had been an inadequate director and we didn't have a good script, it would have been utterly futile, an utterly futile gesture. So it was a part of the way Tom approached things. He didn't direct me by trying to manipulate me, uh, telling me exactly what to do, how he wanted things to sound, how he wanted me to walk. He directed me through that kind of 
stimuli. And so he's going to sew your name into your jacket, and he's already thought through what texture the material is going to be and when you ordered it and from where you ordered it. You, you can be pretty sure he's also thought through the chairs you're sitting on, the cups you drink out of, the house that you live in, the, um, the office that you inhabit. Uh, it, it was all extremely eloquent to me of George's world. And George is defined really in this film by what he sees and how he deals with what he sees. I just want to get back to the phone call for a second that mm -hmm. we opened with. So the actor who is on the phone with you in the scene that we just heard is John Hamm, who plays the leading role in the AMC series Mad Men. Mm -hmm. And um, he has such a distinctive voice, I kind of recognized it immediately. <laughs> I, think, mm. I think he wasn't quite as famous when he made that scene as, as he is now. Did you know who he was? or was, it, was he just like a voice on the telephone, or did you just meet him? Was he in another room no. on the set, or was he like someplace altogether and you were never... You never met? I never met him. I, I didn't speak to John. I spoke to Chris Weitz, who was one of our producers, who was in the next room on the other end of a phone line. So John came in to do that voice later. You mean you, were, you didn't even shoot the scene with him, with that voice? No. no. Wow. So <laughs> that was done on, uh, on, different, uh, on different occasions. So you, you have him to credit for that, really, because he... Um, he he was spoke you know he sounded as, as very much as if he was there. Was Chris White's the director good enough to give you what you needed in that scene? It's such an emotional scene for you. You'd think you'd want the like the real thing and not a stand-in. <laughs> you know, Chris was pretty good. Yeah. Um, yes, I, it wasn't entirely different from what you hear. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were both haunted by the moment, so I think Chris was uh, very sensitive, which is what he had to be. But there are a lot of things that didn't help. I mean, that was the day, just before I shot that scene, the sound man took his headphones off and played John McCain's concession speech to the room because that was the day that we were shooting that. Um, and now, you know, I, I don't know what your politics are, but hearing John McCain um, uh, conceding defeat was not, conducive to tragedy uh, in that moment for me. <laughs> so, so you were elated and then you had to be, tra you know, get, get exactly. tragic news and respond to that. Exactly. I mean, if we think ourselves back to that moment, it was, it was quite, quite extraordinary. And uh, it, was, it felt very special to be in America when that, mm -hmm. that moment happened. I find it so interesting that in a single man, you're directed by a fashion designer who has picked... Every article of clothing you're going to wear has sewn in the Savile Row label to make it more authentic because, because the clothes are so important to this man. When you went to school, when you went to acting school, what I read about this is that there were no mirrors in the school except in the restrooms because mm. this school discouraged the kind of external acting that depends on having a costume or the clothing or the right look. They didn't want you to be looking at yourself in the mirror or to be thinking in that kind of way. Hmm. Um, when, when you played, was it Lear? You weren't allowed to, to wear a beard? <laughs> That's right. That's so, right. Yes, it was ghastly. It have been very exposing. So it seems like this film, in some ways, is the opposite of what you were taught because those external things, including the coffee cup in the house, the glass house that you lived in, were just hmm. so important 
to you getting into the character and to the character himself? Let me flip that around because actually, funnily enough, it's not uh, the opposite. It's, quite, it's, it's precisely the same. If Tom had taken me through, if he was the kind of director that said, in this scene I want you to look this way, and in this scene, I want you to look that way, and I want you to tilt your head slightly to the right, and I want you to do this face, and I want you to cut this figure and uh, in this scene, and I want this silhouette of you against a backlight, and I want your, you to look this way. The, none of it was about that. He took care of that, and therefore he took it out of the equation for me. That was dealt with. I never had to think for one second how I was being photographed, whether I was going to look good or bad. All I had to think about was what I had to think about, you know, was what the character was thinking about or what the character is seeing and the effect. Are, are there times the, in movies where you have had to th think about or worry about if you were looking good or bad, if you were being photographed in a good way? And I don't necessarily mean in a flattering way, I mean in, a, in an interesting way. Well, because of the way I was trained, I try never to do that anyway. Um, I think if you're working with... Um, well, let's say if you're working with an incompetent director or if you're working in an environment which makes you basically insecure about the work and makes you feel that you, know, you can't trust the process and you can't trust the outcome, then you suddenly become conscious of all kinds of things that you otherwise wouldn't be because you, you're not sure somebody's in control. When you have the luxury of having such complete trust that the external stuff is taken care of, it frees you up completely to inform the rest of it with your own stuff. And Tom didn't seek to interfere with the, the interior life of the character. He, he and I understood one another quite well. You know, watching a sing single man and seeing your face, and your face is so important in, in the movie, I kept thinking, your face looks so 1962 and it's it's in part because of like the thick dark the thick, the thick like uh, black eyeglass frames Glasses, that you're wearing, yes, yeah. and of course you know the clothing that you're wearing. But there's something about your face. It just struck me as early '60s, and I was starting to think like who in particular is it I'm being reminded of, and you know who I think it is. Who? Okay, you're gonna think I'm crazy probably. Um, early George C. Scott. Now that happened to occurred to me. <laughs> I'll take that. I think that's wonderful. Um, I've, your your I've faces been, aren't really similar. Yeah. There's just something about the the tension in your face for this movie that reminded me of him because he has interesting. Yeah. He has a lot of tension a, in his jaw. I think. Yes, I was. In fact, for some reason, I was reflecting on the Hustler today, which is one of my favorite films. Because I've got that ghastly question of name your favorite films of all time. It's definitely got to be one of them. So he was in my mind this morning. It's very odd that you should say that because that's about probably the period you're talking about, isn't it? it, um, it yeah, it's it probably yeah. about the period, yeah. No, I think, I mean, one or two people that you have said, um, it's, it's often, a, it, it's interesting that you don't associate that with glasses, I don't think, because um, a lot of people have said Harold Pinter or Michael Caine, which I think is largely to do with really just the glasses and that, that look. One of the people that comes most to my mind um, is my father because he... Uh, is a professor and was probably, I mean, he's, he would be younger than George. He would have just been beginning his career in 1962. But the glasses, the hair, uh, and because he's my dad, obviously there's a facial similarity. Um, call to mind my dad. He's, you know, he would have worn the brown tweed suit. It wouldn't probably have fitted him quite as immaculately as this one fits George. But um, I think in, in some ways, um, in terms of 
I don't know how conscious I was when I, of this when I was when I was playing it, but I think that the certainly the the quiet, thoughtful dignity of the character I think is something that, um, on some level, was inspired by my dad. Is your father still alive? He is. Yeah. Does he know that uh, this character, the way you played him, was inspired in part? I don't think he does. No, no. I think he's going to know now. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with Colin Firth, who starred in the films Mamma Mia, Bridget Jones' Diary, Love Actually, and the British TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. He's nominated for an Oscar for his starring role in A Single Man. His character, George, becomes a single man when his longtime partner, Jim, is killed in a car crash. George numbly moves through his life, rarely revealing his emotions, and continues teaching literature at a university in California. In this scene, he's teaching a book by Aldous Huxley, and in answer to one of the students' questions, he starts talking about why people fear minorities. It's just about the only scene in the film in which he speaks for an extended period of time. Minority is only thought of as one when it constitutes some kind of threat to the majority, a real threat or an imagined one. And therein lies the fear. And if that minority is somehow invisible, then the fear is much greater. That fear is why the minority is persecuted. And so you see, there always is a cause. The cause is fear. Minorities are just people. People like us. I can see I've lost you a bit. I'll tell you what, I'm going to forget about Mr. Huxley today. And we're going to talk about fear. Fear, after all, is our real enemy. Fear is taking over our world. Fear is being used as a tool of manipulation in our society. It's our politicians peddle policy. It's how Madison Avenue sells us things you don't need. Think about it. The fear of being attacked. The fear that there are communists lurking around every corner. The fear that some little Caribbean country that doesn't believe in our way of life poses a threat to us. The fear that black culture may take over the world. The fear of Elvis Presley's hips. Actually, maybe that one is a real fear. Fear that our bad breath may ruin our friendships. Fear of growing old, being alone. Fear that we're useless and that no one cares what we have to say. Have a good weekend. In A Single Man, you play a gay man, a, a man who seems to be comfortable being gay, but he knows he can't be out to a lot of people, for instance, where he, he teaches. But um, there are scenes in which we're seeing other men through the eyes of your character, George. And mm. he's focusing on some of these men in, in, in a very erotic way. Mm. And so I'm wondering if in playing the role, since, since you're not gay, but you were playing a gay man, if you had to start looking at men in a different way and seeing them through the eyes of George. It's an interesting question. I don't know. I think that, um, you know, I don't find it to be something that's so very distant. I... I you know, I think you can um, be very comfortable in your sexuality and find people of both sexes attractive and appealing. 
So I don't think, you know, in the scene where I'm having to look at the tennis players, and I wasn't looking at tennis players really, I was looking at some electricians probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is a scene where everything seems, you're, someone's talking to you about the threat of nuclear war or something, and you're gazing at these two men playing tennis, and, and you're gazing them with some amount of um, awe and longing because they're, they're so beautiful. As they, right. as, they, as they play. <laughs> well, that wasn't what I was looking at on the day. And uh, I can tell you I did not find the electricians attractive at all. Uh, I actually think, now it's coming back to me, I think Tom had a couple of the guys playing tennis players sort of stand in. Um, you know, in tennis, you know, they, they were there to shoot their scene. So we thought well, we might as well have them standing there for an island. <laughs> I remember thinking, now, is this helping? I'm, I'm looking at guys. <laughs> I'm looking at guys, the electricians didn't work, and I'm not sure the guy in the tennis gear works anyway. Now I'm beginning to get confused. Um, so I don't know. It, it's an interesting question to ask about acting generally. I mean, if you're playing someone that um, is obsessed with collecting stamps or is power-crazed or, I don't know, um, uh, is determined to you know, climb Mount Everest, I don't have to have those particular passions um, in me. Uh, in order to be able to play that part, I have to find passion from somewhere. And somehow I have to make that uh, translate as, as that passion. So I think, it, it, you know, whatever you're doing, it's, it's never going to be entirely you and the character's preoccupations and, and uh, uh, you know, orientations are never going to have to be exactly what yours are. If you're just joining us, my guest is Colin Firth, who's now starring in the film A Single Man. Now, you, you grew up in a bunch of places, Nigeria, the United States, several places in England. You, you were in India for a while, too? I didn't go to India. You didn't go um, to India. But your parents grew up my, in India. My parents were born and raised in India. I still haven't been, which is increasingly peculiar if you know my family, because I really am the only member of the family that, I, that hasn't been. I'm, I'm nearly 50, and I, I still owe that trip. And it was um, the fact that I think that your grandparents were missionaries – that uh, yes. led to your parents living in India and then Nigeria? That's correct. Um, my paternal grandfather started as a, um, as a, a missionary. He, he joined the British Missionary Society because he heard that they were building schools and hospitals in India. He was not evangelical. He didn't go around converting people. In fact, he was very proud of the fact that he never converted a single person. Um, his wife was also an ordained minister. He then took the decision to train as a doctor and came to the United States and took his family to a medical school in Iowa uh, for eight years and then returned to India um, as a doctor specializing in osteopathy and would go off for six months around into the mountains and uh, cure as many people as he could. And what about your parents? My parents grew up there. My mother, I think, didn't come to England at all until she was about 16 because of what her father was doing, she spent eight years of, of school in, in the United States, in Iowa, in a place called Ankeny. And um, they, my parents knew each other since they were very small because they grew up together in South India. Um, my father became uh, a history lecturer, and uh, my mother has taught and lectured in all sorts of things, um, comparative religion and the, the study of, uh, of other faiths, um, she is a a person who I think uh, has a great belief in the contemplative lifestyle. She she practices meditation. She, I think, is uh, a, a real searcher. Do, do you practice meditation? No, not seriously. 
Um, I've just sort of tried to learn to be quiet a little bit. I've, <laughs> I actually went to a monastery. Um, this was a, a Buddhist monastery to, to learn something about meditation. And I have never practiced it with any great discipline. But I did find it to be, even in its probably shallowest and least disciplined form, I, I did find it to be somewhat helpful. Because however fortunate my lifestyle is, it's, it's not always the most restful. What made you go in the first place to the Buddhist monastery? What, what did you want? Um, restfulness. <laughs> I suppose it was this sense that um, I th- I've always been very attracted to the randomness and, and, and the unpredictability of my profession. I, I enjoy not knowing what's next. I enjoy the passionate commitment to something which is going to be gone soon. It's a strange um, creative promiscuity, if you like, where I'll, I'll move on to the next thing um, and commit myself with equal you know, immersion and delight in something as if the one before just never existed. And I think that it's very exciting, but it can create a kind of upheaval because there's no um, continuity. And however thrilled I am by what I'm doing and however stimulated I've, I am by it, I think it's, um, it can be quite difficult to get back to a sort of a core. One of the things you're doing is, is, is taking on different people's lives. You're changing character. You're changing personalities. You're, you're you know, you, you, you're not always, I find it, it's not always easy to shake them off. And um, and before you've shaken one off, you're taking another one on. And I think just uh, for an actor, it, it, just to get back to uh, a sense of who um, who you are without all of that, I think can be can be quite a challenge. This is quite some time ago that I'm talking about, but I think that's what I was. How long ago? Where were you? Where were you in your life? I was. It's about fifteen or so years ago, and um, uh, I. There was quite a bit of upheaval um, on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was single at the time, and um, it seemed that uh, I was always at my happiest when I was employed or, you know, I think there's something perfectly healthy about that, but I was always at my happiest when I was engaged in something that was distracting me. And I think it was, I felt it was time to you know, to discover how to celebrate life or to to take joy in life when I wasn't distracted. I hate to end here, but we're we're out of time. Um, thank you so much, and thank you. I should say we're recording this interview um, a few days before the announcement of the Oscar nominations. But I know by the time our listeners are hearing this, the nominations will have been uh, announced. So. I hope congratulations are in order. (laughs) (laughs) um, I I hope I can thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. Colin Firth, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My interview with Colin Firth was recorded last week. Yesterday, he got the Oscar nomination, so now I can give him an official long-distance congratulations.